Greetings, greetings, friends. So good to see so many of your faces, friends we haven't seen in a while, and friends who are visiting, and to the friends that are at home or wherever you are. Uh, it is a privilege to be with you this morning to open up the scriptures, and our text for today invites us into a question that's at the heart of the gospel. It's really the heartbeat of the gospel. It's the center of the Christ story. What does it mean to be saved? And so if we go back to the very beginning, Matthew 1 teaches, Jesus will save his people from our sins. Sin being whatever it is that prevents us from caring well for ourselves, for one another, for the planet. So what is the thing that keeps us from being able to fulfill our best intentions? And what does it mean to be saved from it? That's the question I'm inviting us into today. How does Jesus' death make our salvation possible, and what does that then lead to for us? So one of the perks of being a researcher of theology and scripture and brain science is I regularly get to have engaging conversations with people who are interested in those same topics. And in speaking with many of you, it's become clear that Many of us are asking similar questions about salvation and the Christ story. And we're asking questions in light of what we have learned about the brain and the body and the nervous system and how positive change occurs for people. It's also clear that many of us have complex feelings associated with this word saved in this context. So let's just make space for those feelings today. And our previous experiences with it. Uh, I first encountered this word saved in a church where a now wealthy celebrity's dad was my pastor. He's who baptized me. And in that place, and in many places after, I was taught, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, John 3. And at the same time, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6. Which I was taught means that God's forgiveness can only be purchased with a death, that God cannot forgive sin any other way. And the notion that someone must die was also taught by the religious institutions of Jesus' time. Lambs and doves were sold for to be slaughtered for God, believing that God's justice demands a sacrifice, that God's forgiveness has to be purchased with a death. And yet, in Matthew 21, when Jesus enters the temple, he releases the animals, setting them free. It's a reminder, as in Isaiah 1, that God does not desire sacrifice, that God can forgive sins without anyone else needing to die for them. The notion that someone must suffer was also taught by religious institutions of our day as a spiritual law that God will either inflict suffering on us or someone has to suffer in our place. And yet, in Mark 2, when Jesus says to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, it's not because someone else's legs were broken in his place. It's really to demonstrate the opposite, that the Son of Man is able to forgive sins without anyone else having to suffer for them. So I've held that tension for much of my life, and maybe you have too, 
And I hope today to offer us a helpful way to move toward that question, rooted in scripture. And let's listen for where our notions of salvation may have gotten turned upside down. And what may God still be hoping today that we would come to understand? So we're here in Mark 10, and our text says this. Then Jesus said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to get into the kingdom of God. And the disciples were startled and perplexed, but Jesus said it again. Children, how hard it is for those who trust in their wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus' words here are a response to a rich young man who asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? So why would Jesus insert this word about money in the middle of a teaching that appears to be about spiritual salvation? Well, let's notice that Jesus clarifies it's not the having of riches that makes salvation difficult. It's our attempt to trust in something inherently untrustworthy. So I'll invite us to wonder together then about the relationship between salvation and trust. Brain science has taught us a lot about how trust functions in the body and the nervous system, and here are some of the things that we have learned. When we encounter a trustworthy person and perceive that person accurately, our bodies respond with trust automatically. And you may notice this. If you think of someone you trust and bring their face to mind, you may notice your brain releasing these warm, pleasant neurotransmitters that calm the brain stem, deepen your breath, sending more oxygen up to your brain. Our belly relaxes. We let our guard down. We open up. We're vulnerable and intimate with someone we trust. Our bodies generate these benefits automatically. We don't so much choose them as we receive them. Now here's what's really interesting. So embodied trust then makes possible this whole range of human capabilities. In trust, we are permitted access to the upper parts of our brain, which then make it possible for us to perceive our options more clearly, to direct our attention more easily. Whenever we, res- we act with wisdom or compassion, when we consume in moderation, which is kinder to the planet, when we are empathetic and forgiving of our enemies, it's these upper pathways that we're accessing. So we might understand that trust makes it possible then for us to fulfill our best intentions. In trust, we feel at our best, even under stress. And we may even come to look more like Christ to reflect the image of God more clearly. Simply put, we may understand trust to be the neurobiological state, the embodied condition in which we experience ourselves as saved. So then, saved from what? Well, consider that Christ saves us from mistrust. Mistrust being that neurobiological condition where our brain releases stress-inducing neurotransmitters that cause us to lose access to the upper parts of our brain. In mistrust, we misperceive people and situations and what's necessary, and our stress is dialed up, and we 
often experience ourselves to be in bodily torment. We may understand mistrust to be the neurobiological state, the embodied condition in which we sin and do harm to ourselves and one another and the planet, and from which we need to be saved. And Jesus says twice, this is hard. It's hard for us to be saved from mistrust when we're taught to trust in something inherently untrustworthy, like security purchased through riches or forgiveness purchased through violence. And like Jesus' disciples, we may hear this and feel amazed and perplexed. How is it possible that what the, the wealthy and the powerful and the celebrities taught us that salvation requires is the opposite of what we are now hearing in Jesus' words and seeing in Jesus' actions. And if salvation is not something that needs to be purchased, neither with riches nor with violence, then how? I would propose that if mistrust is the condition in which we sin and from which we need to be saved, then trust is the antidote. Which places it really outside of our control then, because trust isn't something we can choose. We have little to no control over whether or not we experience trust. Rather, trust is an automatic bodily response to encountering someone who is trustworthy and perceiving them accurately. As Bessel van der Kolk says, our bodies keep the score. So consider that if God is trustworthy and if we're perceiving God accurately with our brain, then our body will respond automatically with trust and all the warm pleasantness and possibilities that follow. And if the image of God we're perceiving is false and untrustworthy, then we are perceiving God inaccurately. And our bodies will respond with mistrust automatically, and rightfully so. Our bodies don't lie. They're truth-tellers about how we're perceiving someone. So then, we might discover ourselves to be saved as our trust is restored by reflecting then on the incarnation, the realization that when we look to Jesus, we are seeing God. That there's no part of God that is not a reflection of Jesus and no part of Jesus that is not a reflection of God. So a helpful practice for us then might be to notice how our bodies respond when we look to Jesus in the Christ story, non-punitive, non-retaliatory, forgiving freely, And then look at the notions of God we've been taught. That God's forgiveness must be purchased with violence. Or God's justice demands someone suffer. And just go back and forth, back and forth between the images until we're able to perceive the difference between the two. What if Christ came and lived the life he did and died the death he died not to be punished by God in our place, but to correct our misperception that it was ever God demanding a death to begin with? What if it 
was us all along? What if we were the ones that mistakenly perceived violence to be necessary? What if it has always been us? And that misperception is the very thing Christ came to save us from. Notice with me that in mistrust, we tend to misperceive reality. So that even when we're safe, our brains can mistakenly perceive there to be a threat, and then our bodies will respond with torment. And this may help us understand some of the urgency of Jesus' teaching about the afterlife. So think with me about this. If our brain, our body, is resurrected, as Jesus' was, scars and all, is it possible that the way we perceive God in this life has played some role, has an impact on how we perceive God in the next This may have been what C.S. Lewis was reflecting on when he said, and that's why the blessed will say in the end, we've never lived anywhere except in heaven, and the lost, we were always in hell, and both will have spoken truly. When the disciples heard Jesus' teaching about salvation not requiring what they had assumed it required, they were amazed and perplexed, and they said to one another, then who can be saved? For so long, they had held the notion that salvation must be purchased with something. And now they were hearing the opposite, that God is able to forgive sins without anyone else needing to die or suffer or pay the price for them. And yet Jesus went to the cross anyway. Not to be punished by God in our place, but perhaps to reveal what really could not have been revealed any other way. That sacrifice is not divine law, but rather a human invention fueled by mistrust. And because mistrust takes place within our brain, it is impossible, spiritually and neurobiologically, for us to save ourselves from it. For humans, it is impossible but not for God. All things are possible for God. So if we are saved from sin and mistrust by reflecting on the image of God we encounter in the Christ story, what does that salvation then make possible for us? Well, as we allow the Christ story to update and refresh our perceptions of God, we are capable then of entering into more fully into a trusting relationship with God. Perhaps the trusting relationship that the original humans enjoyed, as the story in the garden suggests, the kind of trusting relationship that allowed them to endure stress and still perceive themselves to be in paradise. And I'll offer us this. I believe it's possible that stress was always inevitable for creatures who exist within time. And time may have been what made creation possible. Time is really the only way to imagine a reflection of God, creation, existing that is also distinguishable from God. Time is what makes that possible. Time is the necessary divergence between God and us. And it makes sense then that we would experience that as stress. 
but trust regulates our stress. In trust, we can tolerate high degrees of stress without experiencing it as torment. And it's possible that that's what made it, made it possible for Jesus to live the life he lived and die the death he died, trusting in God that all his needs would be met. So friends, when we take the, the bread and drink from the cup, we're invited to remember that when God's body in Christ was broken, when God's blood in Christ was spilled, God did so willingly to restore our trust. God did so as the sacrifice we mistakenly believed was required. In order to demonstrate the lengths God would go to to persuade us, no, you were always already forgiven. Trust. Trust in God. God in a body hanging on the cross. Not because God's forgiveness requires a death, but to persuade us once and for all, yours doesn't either. Please pray with me. Our Savior who art in heaven, holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our mistrust as we forgive those who mistrust us. Lead us out of our misperceptions, deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory, now and forever. Amen.